0: To Luke chapter 9, I invite your attention with me, where we'll be reading from verses 37 through 56. Luke 9, verse 37. Last Sunday, we were, as we sometimes uh, sing, uh, with Him in the Holy Mount. And we looked by faith on the glowing face of Jesus, transfigured on the mountaintop. And it was indeed a, a mountaintop experience. Uh, for us, as is the Lord's Day every week. We begin every week on the mountain, as it were, in the presence of the Lord in worship. But then comes Monday. I don't know whether you experience this or not, but it is a phenomenon well known to pastors, Sunday is the mountaintop, you know, proclaiming the Word of God, leading God's people in worship. I can tell you there are few things as exhilarating, even if exhausting, as a pastors work on Sunday. Last Sunday after worship, I I thought to myself, there is no place that I would rather be right now than right now. Here I think I had a little bit of Peter's uh, syndrome, you know, Master, it's good for us to be here. Uh, and then comes Monday. As I say, pastors know the feeling well, and you who prize the Lord's day and His worship above everything else, know the feeling too. I don't know whether I've experienced such a blue mon- Monday as I did last week. Everything I did felt like slogging through molasses in January, you know, physically and spiritually. I was thoroughly drained. What happened? Well, we don't live on the mountaintop, do we? For right now, we just visit there. We will one day. When Christ ushers in eternal Sabbath day, there will be no more Mondays. But uh, it was that way for the disciples, too, on this, as Luke points out in the text, the next day. Uh, Like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the law in hand, only to find the people of God there tripping over themselves to break it. So Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration to find the next day a mess, A total mess. That, alas, is where we often find ourselves, isn't it? And where he finds us. Not on the mountain, but in the valley below, struggling, sometimes succumbing to sin. It's not a pretty picture, but it's one we'll do well to consider. It's a portrait of ourselves of sorts, full of lessons for us where we live most of our lives in this present age. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word once again, we're reminded how much we need you, how much we desperately need your spirit to open our ears, to receive truth our hearts and minds that it may take its place there, that you may rule on the throne of our hearts. So we pray. Speak And give us the grace to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 9.37 On the next day, when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, "Oh, faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid. To ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Of all the works of art intended to capture something of the event of our Lord's transfiguration, only one that I've seen pays any attention to the context, and that is Raphael's. In his painting, on which he literally worked himself to death, Raphael combines and therefore contrasts the events of these two days. On the top half of his painting is the transfiguration, all light and splendor uh, up on the mount. On the bottom, what we've just read, rancor, apostolic impotence, pride run amuck in some darkness. What he's done with light above and shadows below is, of course, to paint with a brush what the gospel writers painted with their pens, the great contrast between the glory above and the shame and confusion below. Alas, it is in the bottom half of that picture where we live most of our lives. Life in a fallen world, in the skin of our own fallen nature, is a struggle. And let's just admit it, it's not always filled with light and glory, is it? And sometimes it is downright chaotic, like Raphael's painting. We didn't read it in Luke's abbreviated account, but Mark tells us in his gospel that uh, when Jesus and the disciples arrived at the bottom of the mountain, what they found was the classic sort of playground fight scene. A great crowd surrounding the remaining disciples, those who were still at the bottom, and some scribes arguing with them. What were they arguing about? Well, Probably the argument had something to do with the fact that the disciples, who had driven demons out of people before probably to the chagrin of the scribes and the church leaders, now found themselves helpless to do anything about this demon in the little boy, probably to the delight of the scribes and the church leaders. What was the problem? Why couldn't they do what they'd successfully done? Just in recent memory on that internship on which the Lord had sent them, preaching and healing, Jesus lays his finger at the root of the problem with a single line. "O faithless and twisted generation. And as we go on in chapter 9, we find out that faithlessness was not their only problem. And what is more, looking into the mirror of God's law, we find that the problems were not theirs only, but are ours, too. Five areas, in fact, wherein they struggle and we do, too. Faithlessness, fear, firstness. I know that's not a word, but we'll get back to that. Fraternity and fieriness. First, consider our faithlessness. If faith is the victory that overcomes the world, then I think we understand why oftentimes it seems we're not doing much overcoming. The problem that the disciples had with the demon-possessed boy, the reason they weren't able to exercise this demon from him was that they'd become faithless. They'd become faithless. Not that they didn't have any faith in principle, of course. They were believers in the Lord, to be sure. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That much has been clearly demonstrated in this gospel. But that is precisely why this rebuke from Jesus is so difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Is Jesus really calling his disciples, his own disciples, faithless? Yes, he is. Because in this particular case especially, they're not acting by faith. They have faith, but they're not exercising it. They're not practicing it. They're acting in their own strength, and that's why they're failing. Why had they been able to drive out demons before, but not now? Because they'd driven them out before, acting in Jesus' name. That is, by the power of Jesus, through faith in Christ. Now, however, they're trusting in themselves, in their own ability, in their own strength. They've become impressed with themselves, with the power they had seen at work in them before. They fa- failed now to reckon with that very fact that that's exactly what it had been, the power at work in them not from them, not of them, through them and in them. Christ's strength. Back when they'd been looking to Christ, drawing on his power by faith and therefore succeeding, they were living by faith. Now they are, now they are to use Jesus' words in his vocabulary, they are faithless. And now you see why we find ourselves so quickly in this history. We do the same thing. We too are faithless. If faith means, as Luther defined it, a sure and steadfast looking to Christ, then, alas, we must admit we have very little of it. We act every day to one degree or another as if we had the strength in and of ourselves to do something, anything. When Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Instead, let's learn to take the advice, shall we, of a faithful and godly minister known for his lively faith, Robert Murray McShane, and for every look at ourselves, take ten looks at Christ. If you learn to do that, you will see great things happen, things that you could never accomplish in a million years by your own strength, but which happen when you take hold of the power of God by faith. And that's what faith is, laying hold of the power of God. Second, there is this matter of fear. A twin sister of faithlessness, fear kept the disciples back. It stunted their growth. It temporarily paralyzed them. After having freed the boy that the disciples could not, healing him, Jesus turns to them, and repeats to them what he's been trying so hard to, to bring them to understand. We've seen this recently in our studies in Luke. You can hear maybe something of his frustration in verse forty four. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. No good. No dice. They don't understand. It's concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. Why or by whom it was concealed from them? We're not entirely sure. Maybe it was concealed from them by God. Maybe it was their their own thick craniums were uh, getting in the way. But look at this. They were afraid to ask him. About this saying. They were afraid. Why? Well, another question for which we don't have a very certain answer. Maybe they were hesitant because of a mild rebuke they'd received from Jesus on a previous question. We don't know. But this much is certainly clear fear held them back. If only they'd gone ahead and asked Him, had voiced what was on their hearts Lord, we don't. We don't get it. You know, we don't quite understand, but we'd be glad if you'd explain that to us. They didn't. They were afraid. And because of fear, an opportunity to grow was forever lost to them. We lose too. We lose big time when we give in to fear. And let fear paralyze us. No wonder the phrase, fear not, appears so many times in the Bible. It's our constant penchant. We're inclined. We're bent on fearing. But what a cost has been paid. For fear, Abraham almost lost his wife to a harem and most certainly lost his dignity to Abimelech. For fear, the people of God, we will soon see in the evening series of sermons, the people of God ended up wandering in the wilderness and perishing in the wasteland, deprived of the promised land. For fear, Gideon put the Lord to the test with a fleece. For fear, Saul usurped the role of a priest, offered the sacrifice, and lost his kingdom fear. Peter denied the Lord. Fear is never a good motive. It's never good to act, my brothers and sisters, out of fear. It makes you do stupid, stupid things. And it is destructive and foolish. And here's the thing. There's no reason for you ever to fear. Anything. The Lord is your God. Even death itself is nothing for you to fear. Third, there's this matter of firstness. I know that's not a word as I said, but I I needed another F. For the list. But it works because that's exactly what the disciples were debating. Who's going to be first in the kingdom of God? It was a question actually carried over from Jewish practice of the rabbis arguing over who gets the best place in the synagogue and therefore in the kingdom of God or vice versa. However, it worked out. It hardly matters. Here in a text loaded with irony, though, as this one is, you have Jesus talking, just talked about, making the ultimate sacrifice of himself, putting himself in absolute, dead last for the sake of his disciples' eternal life, and the disciples turn around and start arguing about who's going to be first. Who's the greatest? pride welling up in their hearts makes absolute donkeys out of them that day, and it does the same with us when it goes unchecked. You know of what I speak. You know that voice that says to you so quietly how great you really are, how how you are so much better at least than those people over there. Better than the next guy, even in the pew. Pride is the recurring theme of man's heart. Last night at the opera Carmen, as it was being performed on stage, I read the program and, and some of the singer's bios that are included in that. Each one seemed to be working so hard to outdo the next, you know, with the list of accolades and performances and dropping the names of those musicians uh, in the music world with whom they had hobnobbed and where they performed and so on. Now, I understand there's a, a role for those bios in that program. I'm not saying that the practice of including them is wrong, but it was to me the reminder that pride the scraping, clawing race to get to the top, to be number one, for everyone to be looking at me, is the modus operandi of mankind. Then I watched as the orchestra tuned their instruments for the evening. The first violin rose and played his Note and all of the rest of the orchestra tuned to his, but it wasn't he so much who caught my interest, it was the person next to him who remained seated. And I was instantly reminded of that saying, It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Well, Jesus isn't calling you to play second fiddle, he's calling you to take the last place. He's calling us to serve the least significant and making their welfare more important, higher priority than our own. That's the point of bringing this child in verse 47, whom he has taken by the hand. Have you noticed how tender Christ is with children? how he watches them, interacts with them, takes them by the hand, returns the child who'd been demon-possessed to his father. We've seen this pattern. And now now this child stands by Jesus' side. What's his point? Uh, One commentator says that that Jesus was calling his disciples here to imitate this little child because children are naturally, quote, untempted to self-advancement. Now we know which commentator never had any children of his own, don't we? Jesus didn't bring him because children are you know, pictures of innocence and not wanting their own way. Of course not. Jesus brought this child before them to say that when they learn to love those who are considered insignificant, when they learn to love those who are or are not worth the time of day, below them, unsophisticated, uninteresting, maybe even dirty, when they learn their place in the world is to serve them, then they will be great. And only then. He who is least among you, all, is the one who is great, Jesus says. Seems to me that what we need to do, my brothers and sisters, is to work very hard at being the least we can possibly be. Racing very hard to come in last. And that we're going to try to be losers or practice some sort of false modesty. That's that's not the point. Rather, we must consider ourselves servants of all. Even those whom in God's providence we've become masters over. When we've mastered that, like our master has, then we will be great and most like our master Jesus. A fourth Monday matter requires our attention. That is the matter of fraternity, of brotherhood, of recognizing who is our brother. The history of the Christian church in these centuries is, alas, often the history of exclusionism. So many groups within the church, within the Christian church, that is, set up their little tent and spend so much of their time guarding their turf, even refusing to recognize their brothers who are in the same camp, fellow Christians denominationalism has a tendency to view other denominations as inferior or not even members maybe of the Christian church. A certain pastor friend of mine who is a member of a very exclusionistic type of Baptist group broke the mold years ago with me. He actually prayed with me and allowed me to lead him in prayer. It was really an amazing day. However, he went on to explain to me later, though he did believe that I was regenerate, that I was a born-again Christian, because I wasn't a member of one of those churches, he didn't think of me, he couldn't think of me, as a member of the body of Christ. Go figure. Not all expressions of this kind of thinking have been nearly as harmless, though. Augustus Toplady and John Wesley were both deeply earnest Christians, both famous preachers, both gifted poets and hymn writers, but one was a Calvinist, And the other an Arminian, and they conducted for years a bitter, ugly, unseemly warfare in print against one another. They always defended their attacks, and they were ad hominem attacks oftentimes. These attacks against one another by claiming that they were driven to do it for the sake of the truth of God that the other was denying. But years later, J.C. Ryle would write in the case of Topley his fellow Calvinist, Never, I regret to say, did an advocate of truth appear to me so entirely to forget the text. Those who oppose the servant of God, he must gently instruct in the hopes that God will give them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And these men died, snapping. At each other, John Newton was absolutely right when he said there's a tendency in all of us to despise those with whom we disagree. I'll take it even further and say that there's a tendency even to deny that those with whom we disagree in the church are even brothers and sisters. We tend to be attracted, don't we, to those people who are, are like us, who agree with us, or even better, who follow us you know and i think that's more the spirit of what john is speaking about here in the text when he said that they weren't following along with us note here more irony john is rebuking that man for successfully doing what john himself can't do at this moment cast out demons Now, I'm certainly not advocating for the sort of thing that showed up in the mailbox uh, at church here last week, a local celebration being planned for every religion, as though all religions are essentially the same, Buddhism, Jainism, Islam, you know, paganism, Judaism, and Christianity, just different ways of getting to the same end. Of course not. My brothers and sisters, if I've learned anything through the years of local ministry here in Owensboro, it must be this. We have brothers and sisters in Christ all around us of all sort of different denominational stripe and conviction. Yes, we have serious disagreements with each other for now over matters of worship, over matters of the sacraments, over doctrines and how best to express them. But these are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we still are of one and the same cause, the advancement of the kingdom of God. Do not stop him, Jesus says to John, for the one who is not against you is for you. Fifth, and finally, the matter of fieriness In Samaria, to no one's surprise, the disciples came to out-and-out unbelievers who rejected Jesus at first glance. You have too, and you will. There are people who hate Jesus and who will not hesitate to reject your message, and that with some degree of gruffness. Your first instinct may well be the same as the disciples. Well, just let them burn. James and John, the sons of thunder, offer to make recompense for their rejection of Jesus in verse 54. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down and and consume them? Sweet fellows. (laughs) Now, God's word could hardly be plainer on the point. Those who reject Christ will ultimately find themselves the objects of his fiery wrath. But should we be in a rush to see it happen? I think Jesus' response to these brothers gives us the answer. He rebukes them. God takes no pleasure in the punishment of sinners. It is, the Bible says, his strange work. It is true that the presence of Jesus divides people from one another, ultimately divides for all eternity. But he said he did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Ministers who preach hell without tears probably shouldn't preach hell at all. Denominations and churches who teach their people a gleefulness about the doom that their enemies will face have not yet grasped the greatness of their own sin nor certainly the horrors of the wrath from which they themselves have been saved. Until we have really Grieved over the destiny of the lost. Our own destiny, by the way, had it not been for the grace that plucked us like firebrands from the burning. We're not ready to speak of hell, much less to consign real living people to it. So five areas for us to watch on Monday... And on every day of our lives, that we live at the foot of the mount of the Lord's transfiguration, let us live by faith, exercising the presence of Christ in our lives, relying on his power, not on our own strength. Let love, the perfect love of God, drive all fear from our hearts. Rather than making ourselves first, and seeking the attention and the praise of others. Let us make ourselves servants of all. Fourth, let us recognize the fraternity, the brotherhood of Christians, even those with whom we disagree, maybe especially those. And fifth, let us be very slow to call down fire on those who do not believe, of such were you, apart from the grace of God. Amen.